Our text this morning is 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abideth in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, we do ask that. We pray that we would fight against any thought or spirit that what we are doing here is not significant. Every time our God speaks through his word, we want to be a church that trembles at it, that delights in it, that seeks to understand it, and wants to apply it. So help us to do all these things in this time for your glory. Amen. These are the words of the old Apostle John, the old pastor John as well. He is leading a church in the area of Ephesus. He pastored there before, then he was arrested and was taken to the island of Patmos where he had a vision that God gave him and wrote that down. We call it the book of Revelation. And then he was released and he came back to Ephesus, pastoring again this same church and these same people. No doubt there was a lot of fondness and affection between the Apostle John and this church. They knew him well, he knew them well. Lots of health, lots of good vibrations. Particularly when you think and consider that John is, is predominantly known as the apostle of love. He, more than anybody else, writes about the role of love and the importance of love uh, in the Christian life. So if you want to talk about a sweet spot that the apostle John had, I would have to think if John is your pastor, he just had a way about him with people uh, of nurturing them and encouraging them, of promoting love and healthy relationships within the church. I mean, if there was anything that John would have been good at, I would, I would think it would be uh, the whole love thing within the church. And as you, I trust, have found here at our church that when things are good and healthy, there are wonderful relationships that are developed. And this is one reason that uh, your, a church is so special, is that the, your, your church is your church. I mean, it's like, this is where I worship, and, and this is where I serve, and these are the people that I serve with, and 
we're doing this, that, and the other in the community and around the world. And this is, I pray for my church and I love my church. I love the people in the church. And that's how I feel about you. This is my church. And so this is the way that, uh, this is what healthy church looks like. And John, I would have to think, was really good at cultivating health and relationships within the church, which is what makes what happened so painful. We've seen it already that what John is doing here is he is on the other side of a church split. Now, I don't know if you've ever been through something like this in your story. I have not, thankfully, Uh, but I have people close to me that have been through this kind of thing, and they will say it's like one of the most terrible things that you could ever go through spiritually devastating for your church where you love and serve with these people there's like a division and there's conflict and that's exactly what happened in this church there arose within the church uh, some leaders and some teachers and people that followed them that did not believe the way that John believed and didn't take kindly to the kinds of things he was saying and teaching and they spoke contrary to him and they sought to get people to follow them And indeed, they did. And so imagine with me what that was like for this church. No doubt people were saying nasty things about John and perhaps others within the church. And the kind of rancor and the kind of sort of thing, you know what I'm saying with that? Where people get going back and forth and there's just, there's tension and there's friction and it's just not fun. And this church had just gone through that, and those people had left. And now John is trying, he's writing this letter, wanting to shepherd this church and to heal the church and to address how should these people look at the people that left, what we saw in them, what they taught, the way they acted. What does that say about them? Are they Christians? Or to ask the question, are we Christians? And how can I know if I am under the grace of God or not? If I have been regenerated or not? How can I know? And that's why John writes this letter. And he is going to again and again hit this point about whether you claim you're a Christian or not really has nothing to do with it. The evidences of whether you are saved are not your words because words are cheap. If you're going to walk the walk, you've got to, I'm sorry, talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. And if you can't talk, don't walk and don't preach. (laughs) So that's the uh, dilemma that they, that, that, that John is, is addressing here. And we saw last week that he already has addressed the whole matter of obedience, that the moral shape and direction of our life can be an indication of whether or not Jesus is the Lord of our life, if he really is our Savior, if we have taken up our cross and followed him or not. And as we saw last week, we said this is not a matter of perfection where we need to morally be perfect. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says nobody is that way. Rather, it's a matter of direction. Prior to being saved, I was heading this way into sin, self Immorality, self-glory, self-love, and all the pain and sickness and junk that goes with that. But when I come to understand that Jesus is Savior and Lord and see my need of a Savior and trust in Christ and what he did on the cross, 
God sends his spirit and applies this work in our life, which brings about change. It is not complete change, but it is directional change. So that if, if, if following and living for self is east, when I become a Christian, now I'm heading west. And what John said last week is, the longer I look, walk west and see the change in my life, I can look back and say, oh, look, how, how can I explain? I used to be going that way, now I'm going this way. Jesus has changed my life. Similarly, no matter what I claim, if I'm still heading east and I have not had a directional change in my life, John would say, no matter what you claim, you're still walking in darkness. And he's going to do that now in a different category. In this text, he does it in the category of love, okay? Love. Since we're talking about love, I want to make sure we know what kind of love we're talking about. And this is one of these words that we throw around, we use for all sorts of things, so that somebody could say, um, you know, I love my cereal in the morning, and I love my mom, right? And they use the same word for their cereal and for their, the woman who brought them into the world, okay? And you see from that and many other examples that... Um, Love, love in our culture doesn't necessarily mean that much. I think we have the camp staff here in the front row that was introduced, and and you know I guarantee this summer there was a there was a Monday night chapel first day of camp, and a ninth grade boy looked across the chapel and saw a ninth grade girl, rushed up to her, or maybe on the way back to the cabin said, "I gotta say, I think I love you." Right, and then on Wednesday of camp he said the same thing to a different girl. We all know those camp relationships, they work out, don't they? Yeah, so <laughs> another example, okay? Love, we use this word. What kind of love, is, what is John talking about when he talks about love? Well, we find in the Bible that biblical love is of a different sort. It is, it is God-like love. It is the love of God, which is a giving of self kind of love. Let me read the classic definition biblically of love, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now we spent about two years studying 1 Corinthians and we spent a lot of time in this definition of love and we summarize that with this definition of what love is. Self-giving for the good and joy of another. Could you say that with me? Self-giving for the good and joy of another. And we see from this kind of love, this biblical love, that it is the opposite of what many people, when they say love, they're talking about. The human natural heart, there are, our loves are self-oriented. I love you because of the way you make me feel. Uh, the way that, that uh, you make me look good or whatever, what you bring to me. Biblical love is the opposite. It is a selfless love. It is a self-giving love. It is the love of God within the Trinity where the Father and the Son and the Spirit eternally 
our self-giving for the good and joy of, a, of, of the other, so that the Father delights and lives for the joy of the Son, and the Son lives and delights for the joy and gladness of the Spirit, and the Spirit similarly for the Father. And within that trinity, there is joy and gladness as they love one another in a self-giving way. When Jesus died on the cross, that was Jesus treating us just like he's treated God the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. He self-gave for our good and for our joy, and he died for our sins. This kind of love, radically different kind of love than we see in the world around us. It is so central to who God is that John's going to say in a little bit in this, in this letter, God is love. So John would say then, or we could ask the question, if somebody is in fellowship with a God who is so at the core love and is a follower of Jesus who gave his life for us, can somebody who claims to have that relationship not have love in their life? And to this, John would say, no. Now let's see how he says it. Look again at verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I am writing, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, one of the things you see with John when he writes is that, that uh, <laughs> at times you're like, what? I mean, here he says, what I'm writing to you is an old commandment, and it's a new commandment. Is this Johannine doublespeak? What is he saying here? How can it be an old commandment? It's either an old commandment or it's a new commandment, right? can't be an old commandment and a new commandment, and yet he says it's both. Why? And what is he getting at here? Well, on one level, it is definitely an old commandment. We can go back into the Old Testament and find in Leviticus 19 famously that it says, love your neighbor. You didn't show much love to me in that moment, I have to say. <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, second greatest commandment, second only to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's an old commandment. That's been in there a long time. That's old covenant, Old Testament. You can rightly say that's an old commandment. It also can be an old commandment, he says here, it's, he says it's the message you've heard. In other words, John has pastored here for a long time. No doubt when he first started telling them about Jesus, his own experiences, walking and living and talking with him, that the need to love one another was very much a part of John's pastoral ministry from the beginning with them. So that I could almost say, well, it's kind of like what I told you back in 98. Remember back, way back then? It's an old commandment. In other words, what I'm saying is nothing new. I mean, we've, this has been around a long time. This is very familiar. And yet, it is also a new commandment, he says. How is it a new commandment? It's new in this way. The life and the ministry of Jesus so radically fulfilled the old commandment that it breathed new life into it. In a sense, Jesus Ministry of love renewed the old commandment and did so in profound and radical ways. Now, 
I want you to see that he says that this is true in him and in you. The him here is, well, if you go back to verse 6, the he there we identified as Jesus, and here we are two verses later with a him. I would say the him in verse 8 is the he in verse 6, both talking about Jesus. It is true in him, and it is true in you. And that's going to be very important in a moment. But Jesus breathes life into this old commandment. How so? William Barclay gives three reasons that I think uh, warrant note here in this message. Three ways that Jesus made the old commandment new. One is the extent to which it reached. The extent to which it reached. The, the Jewish concept of the day in terms of who you had to love was basically this. Well, I, I probably should at least love the people in my house. So I look around my house, who's under the roof of my house, I probably need to love them. And I probably ought to love like DNA family, not in-laws, just DNA family. <laughs> and maybe the house or two next to us. As long as I do those people, I have fulfilled the command, I'm good. Jesus comes along, and who does he love? Everybody, right? Everybody. The Jew, the Gentile, the man, the woman, the adult, the child, the healthy, the leper, people that agreed with him, people that didn't agree with him. The extent to which Jesus lives out this command was so radical, the people came to him and said, who's our neighbor? And you remember Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point of that parable is not who's my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? And the point of that is everyone, cross-racial and gender and ethnic and uh, social categories, blows all that away. And Jesus came along and he loved everybody. Secondly, the links to which it would go. Oh, yeah, we ought to love each other. I, I thoroughly agree with that. And you know what? I'm going to love you and I am not going to shake your hand. Because it is the flu season, and I'm going to love you enough not to pass on my germs. See, I love you. I love you. Or, you know, okay, I'll, maybe I'll do something nice once a quarter. Okay? I'm fulfilling the command. Jesus comes along, and the length to which his love would go would take him where? To the cross. His love, this loving your neighbor he gave his whole everything, his life. Greater love is no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus was the friend of sinners. And then thirdly is the degree to which it was realized. Again, in him and in you. What John is saying is the same love that Jesus had, this love of God incarnated in the life and ministry of Jesus that same love that was in him is also in you. And that little statement there is the basis for his whole argument, which is basically that those that follow the God of love will have love in their life. And if they don't, then they are not true, genuine followers of the God of love and the Savior of love, which we'll get into here in, in just a second. Now, as we do this, I want to emphasize something 
And it's the same thing that we did last week when we were talking about obedience and what John says about obedience. Because it would be easy after last week to walk out and say, I'm going to fulfill the Ten Commandments so that I go to heaven. And just turn into a kind of a legalist, a religious, religiousist, I don't even know, what, a religious person, and try to earn your salvation. And this week, as we talk about love, I don't want anybody leaving here going, I've got to be nice to somebody or I'm going to hell. Because if I'm not loving, then I'm not a Christian. What John is saying here is not that we do these things in order to be saved, but rather as the fruit and the evidence of the transforming work of Jesus in our life. Okay, So this is not self-manufactured, but it is self-applied. Okay, It is something that we, we evidence, but the genesis of it is not us, it's God. Now, he uses a very interesting metaphor to describe where we are in the redemptive story. Notice that he says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now think with me a moment. Darkness is passing away, light is already shining. What do you suppose he's describing? Does that sound like anything to you? Sun shining, darkness fleeting. It's a sunrise. Of course, here I am third service. None of you have seen a sunrise in years, probably. <laughs> or you would come to the nine o'clock. I gotta realize my audience here. Nine o'clock, I said, what's that side? It was like thunder. Sunrise! Actually, it wasn't, was it? <laughs> you were here. A sunrise. What is a sunrise? The sun is already shining, and the light is fleeting. In fact, a picture here to help with this. Isn't that nice? Don't you just want to look at that? In fact, I would love to, I'd love to be in that moment right there. Like, that's my back, the view out of my back porch. That'd be awesome. The sunrise, the sun rays, coffee in my hand, <laughs> Jennifer at my side, butter in the bread, baby, butter in the bread. <laughs> that would be awesome. And you know what? If you wait six more months around here, you might see something like that. Because it's cold outside today, is it not? You're like, I didn't see none of that. Nothing looked like that on the way to church today. You're right. Barren tundra. So anyway, I am digressing here, third service. What is the point of this? Here's a sunrise. And you see that light is already shining, isn't it? Okay, light is shining. But there is also darkness, which is fleeting, but it is still there. And what John is describing here is this kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a redemptive narrative, rede the, the history of redemption, that when Jesus died and was resurrected, the glory of Christ began to shine in the gospel and in the church and in the world. But at the same time, it is not shining in its noonday brilliance. There is still darkness, isn't there? There is still the effects of sin. There is still 
the darkness of the human heart, there is still there is still the enemy in this world. And we live in this transition time where Jesus has been resurrected. He is at the right hand of God. His glory is shining, but not completely yet. And there is still darkness around us. I think it's a cool picture. Someday it will shine fully. He is coming back. And then there will be neither night nor darkness. And we look forward to that day. But that light is the invasion of the glory of heaven, the reality of who God is, his love, his beauty, his truth, his goodness, just in a world filled with darkness. And with that light is love. That's what he's saying. Light of God and love always go together so much so that he's going to say where there is light in the human heart there will be love on display in their life and where there is not love on display in their life no matter what they claim there is not light there is not salvation there is not jesus within them and that's what he says now in verse 9 whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John is now talking about the danger of profession of salvation without the reality of love in life. So do you see the parable? Light and love darkness and hate they always go together in fact darkness what is he describing here it's used seven times in first john and it stands for either sinful behavior or the realm in which sinful behavior predominates darkness is a it's a spiritual picture of a heart that is not in fellowship with a god who is light in fact, it's very similar. We all, we all know this truth, okay? We all know this truth. When you, when you go into a dark room in your basement, let's say, if you have a basement at home, it's always dark in the basement, and you flip on the light switch, what happens in that moment? Suddenly, the darkness is gone because the light is there, right? Where there is no light, there is darkness. And when, there, when the darkness flees, there is, there is light. You never flip on the switch and watch the battle between light and darkness going on like this. The fact that there is light, darkness is gone. That's what John is basically saying. They are mutually exclusive. And since God is light, and all who have that light of God who is love, love others, when there is the absence of love, there is then the absence of light. Love is an evidence of light within us. If you have light in here, you will have love out here. If there is no love out here, there's no light in here. But wait, I claim to be in the light. I know Jesus. I'm a follower of God. But mostly my life is hate and darkness. Then you know what? Your claim doesn't mean anything to the Apostle John. Cl claiming something doesn't make it true. This is the reality. Now, Pastor Steve, are you saying that we've got to love in order to be saved? Nope. 
It's not what I'm saying. You gotta believe in Jesus to be saved. Repent of your sins, turn to him. Love is what happens after you do that. They always go together. Now, does that, are you saying then that unbelievers don't agape? They don't love? No, unbelievers do amazing acts of love. I mean, think of the stories we hear out of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and think of what firefighters do and, and medical staff and different people that regularly are giving of themselves for the good and joy of others. But here is the difference. Hebrews 11:6. without faith it is impossible to please God. Unbelievers will agape, but for them it is a kind of maximum in their life. For the genuine Christian, it is a bare minimum. Unbelievers will, and sometimes more than Christians, but for, un- but for believers, it is a bare minimum. It is a necessity. And this lack of love, John calls hate. He's describing here a kind of a pattern of life, a way of living that is largely marked not by love, but by anger and bitterness and strife and divisiveness and judgmentalism like the people that left his church. They are in darkness, is what he is saying. Now right here, we're on, I think, a very important point for Christians, and and that is that so many Christians self-evaluate their spiritual maturity based upon what they don't do. Like the old saying, and it's old and tired, uh, but I'll say it anyway, the, the, you know, uh, good Christians don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't go with girls who do, uh, if you've ever heard that. It's not really funny, so don't laugh. <laughs> I know. Um, but many Christians, we do that, don't we? We stand in the front of the mirror, and we say, we look at ourselves, and we think, I am a great Christian. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't robbed a bank. I've never cheated on the Tour de France. I have no imaginary girlfriends. I'm like, (laughs) I'm amazing. I'm a good Christian because of what I don't do. And John is not focusing on what we don't do. Love is not the absence of hate. Love is active, like light into darkness. It, it, it does something. Love self-gives for others, like Jesus did. It's active. I think a good example of this would be racism. When you think about racism, many people say, well, they'll say, oh, I'm not a racist because I don't hate people that are different than me. They have a different skin color, or they have a different ethnicity, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't, maybe even hear them say this, I don't hate them, and the tone means what? I'm, I feel myself as more kind of neutral, like I don't have really angry feelings towards them, I'm, I'm more in the neutral category. When am I not a racist? Is it when I simply don't hate people that are different than me? Or when I can look at anybody with honor and respect, regardless of the color of their skin or their background, and actually love them and give of myself to meet their needs. 
That is when I am no longer a racist. And love is like that. It's never neutral, and it's not the absence of hate. Love is, it's a verb. It's, a, it's something that does something like light in darkness. In fact, John is going to get very practical with this in, in a chapter when he says in chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Lots of people can talk, 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 talk. The kind of love that he's talking about is in deed and in truth. So John is not asking us to say, do I not do, I, do, I not do bad things? He is saying, do I do loving things? And is the, is the tone and the texture of my life, like Jesus, self-giving for the good and joy of others? Now, I can stop right here. I think I've exposited the text faithfully. I have done my job. But when I got to this point in my preparation, I began to think about my own life in terms of love. And I will be honest, although not as vulnerable as I, as I could be, because I am utterly embarrassed to think about things in my life where I have not been loving, where I have been much more like the racist evaluating people based upon something exterior or to prejudge people because of their personality or something annoying in them or they disagree with me or they've criticized me or on and on. And what I feel in myself, I look at my past, how easily I become standoffish from people like that. And indeed, I have a few things, one in particular that is utterly an embarrassment to me that I regret so deeply that I, I would die a thousand deaths to share here. So, I just look back and I think, well, I was so rotten. So, when I look in the mirror, do I see those things in my past and in my story and say, well, then I must not be a Christian because I see moments where I did not love like John is talking about here. Anybody with me? Because if it, if it has to be all light for me to be saved, then I'm not saved. So what do we do with what I'm calling shadows? Shadows. Let's go back to that photo a moment. I said to you, it's a great picture of what John is saying about where we are in the redemptive story. Jesus has been resurrected. The light is, of his glory is shining, but we still have darkness in the world. That day is going to change when his glory is fully shining and there is no more darkness. This photo, I think, also pictures my heart. Because you know what? As best I can, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe that salvation is only in him. I really believe on the third day he was resurrected from the dead. And I have tried to follow Jesus with my life. I look in my path, I look in my heart, and I see light. There's light there. But then I see these shadows and these places of darkness. 
What do I do with them? Well, shadows are places where that light has not shined, shown, whatever the word is, yet. It's not there yet. These are places where habitual ways of thinking, things that our parents maybe inclined us towards, areas of rebellion, people that we're still mad at in our past, areas of bitterness against people who wronged us, maybe even darkness where we don't want the light to shine because I'd rather be mad about it. Can you relate to that? What do we do with those areas of darkness? And the answer to that is what John has already written in chapter 1, verse 9. We confess those areas as sin. We ask God to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We invite the light of God's love into every crevice of our heart. And as a faithful heavenly father, don't you think that if we honestly come to him and say, God, this is an area that I have clung to for a long time, I invite you in and may the lordship of Jesus and the light of his love shine even in this area as well. Won't a heavenly father delight to answer that prayer? I think that he will. And this is the difference. Because the unbeliever, men love darkness rather than light. The unbeliever doesn't want the light to shine there. Would rather stumble around in the darkness. But the Christian wants the light of God everywhere in my heart. I want to be fully surrendered to everything in my life. And I invite God in. Second thing. I mean as an assurance and an encouragement to you. Because if I look at that photo, I could look at that and say, you know what? How do I know if I'm saved? I got all these shadows in my life. Here's something that you've noticed, I'm sure. There are no shadows in a dark room. What does it take for there to be a shadow? There has to be light. And the fact that I have some areas where there is a shadow and other areas where there clearly is light is an assurance that the light of Jesus has shined in my heart. You know, like I think last week I had, I had somebody said to me, they were struggling with, you know, I, I see what you're saying and, and I, I worry if I'm a Christian or not. And I said to them, the fact that you're worried about it is a great indication that you are. It's the people that don't worry about it, that shrug their shoulders and say, big whoop, who cares? I'm going to be what I want. I'm going to live the way that I want. What he is describing here about walking in darkness is the individual who simply says, I do what I do, and I'm the man, and nobody can tell me what I, and, and in the church oftentimes, they are like this, I'm going to, I've got to say what I've got to say, and I don't care what kind of damage it does to anybody. And these individuals, they come to churches and they just leave a swath of destruction. No matter what small group you put them into, it blows up. Whatever group they're talking to, conflict and, and tension is, is, is erupting. In fact, I'll tell you that 
amongst pastors in this area, sometimes I've had this where uh, so-and-so leaves that church, and now they're coming to our church. And the pastor says, oh, so-and-so's at your church now. Good luck with that. And what does he mean by that? This is a guy who just, he went to this church for four years, and that church for three years, and that church for one year, and three weeks there before he blew that church up. And then he went over here, and people, they, just, they just go around, and everywhere they go, it's like a grenade going off. But I've got to fight for the truth, and I don't care what it does to anybody. Loves the truth, too. Loves the truth, too. These people, their words are divisive, their actions inflammatory. There's no gentleness about them. There's no tenderness about them. There's no sense that they have ever stood in their mind, humbled at the foot of the cross and realized that Jesus bore their guilt on that cross. How different, again, directionally, how different that kind of person from the kind of person who Maybe was that way, probably was that way, but now is living in a manner where, while with shadows and light intermixed, there is evidence that they have been tenderized by the gospel, and where they see people in need and their heart goes out to them. And they're not just having their heart go out to them, they're willing to take steps in order to meet the needs. And there's a gentleness and a kindness in their words. And there's just a, you know, have you ever noticed at times when you meet people, you think, I think he's a Christian. You just kind of almost know it. Why? There's There's a way about them. I think that they have met Jesus by faith. I see a change in them. They are walking in the light. And because they are in the light, there is love that comes with it. It flows from God to them and then to others. So that's the point. And really what John is saying is, hey everybody, look in the mirror, but look rightly. Don't look at what you don't do. Don't look at what you say. But look at the tone and the texture, the the, the vibe of your life. And is there a reflection of the agape, self-giving God who bled on a cross for you? And is there an extension of that kind of love to the people around us? If so, there is light. If not, there is darkness. Now, the last thing I want to say is There is something implicit in here that John is saying that I want to make clear. I'm going to make clear throughout this whole series. He's intentionally calling out the pretenders. And the thing about pretenders is that often they are self-convinced that they're not pretenders. And if you are here and this is resonating in your heart in a way that you're thinking to yourself, you know what? That whole thing last week about obeying God and now this week loving others, it's like freaking me out. Because, I mean, I've always viewed myself as a Christian and I've kind of wondered at times, and this is kind of confirming the fact that perhaps I am not. You know what John is basically saying as well with this? Leave the darkness and come into the light. And we do that not by trying to go out and obey trying to go out and love people, 
but by coming genuinely in faith to the one who perfectly obeyed and perfectly loved Jesus and died for us. And if that's you here, and you know what, you might be like, oh, but everybody thinks I'm a Christian. I can't, I don't want to blow my cover. One second after you're dead, you could care, you'll care less about what anybody here thinks. And by the way, just so you know, I'll tell you what we think. Anybody who comes to faith in Jesus is a cause for celebration. And I don't care if you're an elder in this church. If you come to faith in Jesus, we celebrate. Okay? So hear the call of John as well, out of darkness and into light by genuine faith in Jesus. And so if the Christians here leave, courage that they're, you know what, I see some evidence of love in my life. Amen. And if the unbeliever or the pretender leaves with a genuine faith for the first time, well, this has been a good service, I think. So to that, why don't you stand with me? And I'm going to pray.